Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to The Ramble. I have a very, very, very talented and cool guest with me today. Uh, someone I, I haven't, gosh, it's been years since we've seen each other, mm. but I hold him dear in my heart and I'm very excited to introduce him to all of you. If you already don't know him, there's a good chance you, you know him, you don't know me. His name is Andrew Allen, and I'm going to read you his, his incredible bio here. So Allen's DIY, do-it-yourself ability and optimistic attitude have served him well. I can attest to his optimistic attitude. He scored five top 10 hits in Canada, 2009's I Want to Be Your Christmas, 2010's Loving You Tonight. You must have heard that song. Everybody's heard that song, which was lodged in the upper reaches of the charts for more than 22 weeks. Very hard to do. 2011's I Want You, 2015's What You Wanted, and 2016's Favorite Christmas Song. Talk a little bit about Christmas songs on this podcast. His benchmark single, Loving You Tonight, as a sunny tune about an ideal romance, got Andrew signed to Epic Records records and helped put Andrew on tour with acts like Bruno Mars, One Republic, Andy Grammer, The Script, Train, Joshua Radden, I hope I said that right, and The Bare Naked Ladies, with the official music video garnering more than 4 million views and over 100,000 copies sold worldwide. That's incredible. As a songwriter, Andrew's written with the likes of Megan Trainer, Rachel Platten, Carly Rae Jepsen, Tyler Shaw, and Toby Gad, writer of all of me, John Legend, If I Were a Boy, Beyonce. The list goes on and on. This is incredible. Uh, from Grammy nomination uh, artists to K-pop sensations and songs that have been featured on TV shows and movies and the radio all over the world. He is a true performer with an exceptional voice, incredible songs. Maybe he'll even sing for us on the uh, podcast. And uh, some serious live looping chops and limitless energy, not to mention a spatter of comic wit, which I can attest to as well, and storytelling ability that creates a dynamic and interactive live show. He's definitely an artist that embodies the term live Andrew Rue. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Joel. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you were the OG podcaster because... Huh. Stick with me here for a second. <laughs> Maybe it's more OG vlogger, but when we, so Andrew and I met via a company that I had called Naked Underwear, which I talk a lot about, and you had a thing called Porch Talks. I did, I guess, didn't I? Or something. Yeah, like that. or step. I don't know. You're you're on. You were on your your steps in your backyard. Yeah. And you would record like a little like solo cast about a bunch of different things update about you and your life. Yeah. I forgot. I feel all like that. I'm remembering this more than you're remembering. This yeah, you are. I don't, I, I, this is very vague, but you're right. I remember doing, I remember there was like little, I would just hold the camera at myself and like talk to it. Well, you were a big star and I was just starstruck. So I remembered it and you've <laughs> <laughs> forgotten, but I remember because you had the naked underwear on the show. You, you held up the box. And I was trying to recall 
and I couldn't remember this, if you ever modeled it. No, I never did. No, I wasn't confident enough. No, not <laughs> no. confident enough. I not know confident to model underwear. No, no. I'm a, you know what, Joel? It's funny. It's like, this is like a, a thing that only the people closest know to me. And now, you know, um, I'm like basically a never nude. I get out of the shower and I put it on underwear right away. Like I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm pretty confident in like putting on my full outfit before I even leave my room. Really? Like, yeah. I mean, unless I'm on a beach, you know, then I'm pretty much uh, clothed. I don't really know why. I don't know where it came from, but that's that's how I prefer to live. I never nude. This is a thing. This sounds like there's a club like we but are. I think there was a guy who was always like, referred to as like the never nude on um, Arrested Development. Oh. On the TV show, yeah, and he like, like, and then he'd like take off his pants and be wearing like jean shorts underneath. Right. People were like, "What the heck, man?" I, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I am always nude, <laughs> and that has nothing to do with naked. I, I had, I don't know where it exactly started, and I shouldn't say always. It, it was like a later in life thing, but I had read this biohack that it was important to suntan your balls oh. as a way of. If I'm remembering this right, increase testosterone as like oh. get that good vitamin D down there. And so <laughs> ever, ever since then, I I have been a lot more naked. Than, That's wild. Yeah, I mean you got right. you got to watch that in in the Okanagan where it's super sunny. That's, yeah, I was like, I mean, they haven't seen the sun <laughs> ever, so I feel like I need to be very aware of this. <laughs> I was. I, okay, so we're like, where's the limit of where I would maybe my comfort level hasn't reached is one of the guys I follow, his name is Ben Greenfield. He's an athlete, personal trainer, biohacker guy. And he goes to like these, these like rewilding manly retreats where you do a lot of manly things. And, and he was saying that they were spearfishing naked in the ocean. Huh. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'd be spearfishing naked in the ocean. Yeah, I don't uh, know. I think too much bait. <laughs> not, that's not a great idea. Right? I know. It just it feels very vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Where did I want to start today? I, I hope you're okay with this because you, I asked you a few questions ahead of time and you gave me, you gave me one that really kind of struck me. And so I wanted to start there. Sure. When you were a young lad mm -hmm. you had a near-death experience mm -hmm. and i was hopeful as as maybe a way of setting up this incredible life that you've lived you could tell me and the listeners a little bit about what happened and how it has shaped your life you know, going forward since it did hmm I like that. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the time, like I only as of late, have I released a song that has much to do with that. And the song that I've just put out, it's a song called How I See It. And it's because through so much of my life, people have been like, wow, you're just so incredibly positive. You've obviously had nothing bad happen to you. Mm. And so the very like one of the first verses in the song relates to the near death experience and the way that it could have gone either way. It could have jaded me and made me um, feel like the world was out to get me and that, you know, or I could have felt forever guilty that I wasn't the one that did die. Cause there was a little boy that did. And instead it, uh, it, I think encouraged me to go the other way and recognize how short life is. Mm -hmm. So taking it back to then, which is not usually where I start, but I, I like that you're asking it. So 
when I was 12 years old, I went to a summer camp. It was like a Bible camp. And the interesting thing was, is I still to this day, am very, very bad at making decisions. So often I shouldn't keep saying that because I'm working on it and I'm trying to tell myself (laughs) that I'm actually a good decision maker, but often it will take me longer than necessary to make a decision. So for example, my parents asked me if I wanted to go to a summer camp and I kind of felt like, I don't know. I wasn't really the kid that ever got on the bus to go to like field trips or anything like that. And my brother, who was four years younger than me, well, still is four years younger than me. <laughs> that, that, there was no like space time yeah. continuum somewhere oh. along the trajectory. <laughs> Has not changed yet. <laughs> and, uh, so he wanted to go to, to this camp. So they signed him up. And then when I finally made the decision and said, okay, I'll go, there was no room left. I couldn't go to that camp anymore. So um, the church that my family had been attending for years decided they were going to do a summer camp. And it was the first year they were ever going to be hosting it. And it was out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Now, the one my brother was going to, it was very established, had wonderful cabins, like a mess hall. They had great chefs, everything. The one now that I was about to go to was basically a bunch of tents in a field (laughs) and like sort of a mess hall. It was pretty like run down. And I was like, I don't know about this. This is (laughs) it's not an East Coast summer camp, right? Like, no, I was like, (laughs) I I don't think I made the right decision here. But I went and I ended up going with a couple other kids from the church and a couple of the kids were actually family friends of ours from like years before. Cause um, we had lived in Quinnell up until I was in grade three and they were kind of around the same age as us. And they had lived in Quinnell as well. And they moved to Vernon. So we've, we'd known them since we were little, little mm-hmm. kids. And there was a, a few of them and, and one was a year younger than me. And then the other one was four years younger than me. And he was best friends with my brother. And unfortunately also didn't go to the camp my brother went to. So just one random evening, it was Wednesday night and we had had dinner and we came out to go plan a skit and we were standing sort of near where the buses were parked. And behind us was this really, really, really big hill with a lot of trees on it. And as we were having this conversation about what type of skit we should do for like the, the drama presentation, we just kind of heard this crack. And I just remember turning around and looking up and seeing this massive tree just falling towards us. And I'd never seen a tree fall. So I was like, kind of just stunned and looking at it like what am I looking at and what is happening right now and by the time I realized what was happening I kind of went to jump out of the way and I didn't get out of the way fast enough and the main part of the tree hit me and then it threw me and then all I kind of remember was like the impact of the ground and then sort of the way that they display it in movies where there's like a bomb that's gone off and everything is quiet you can't Mm -hmm. hear anything and then a ringing comes back into your ears and as i started to come to i kind of rolled over and sat up and i uh i did a quick scan of my body and went down like my stomach and then looked at my leg and my jeans were ripped open and it was the most surreal thing because i looked and all i could see was this white thing moving and i was like what is going on there and Later, what I realized it was, is that the tree was moving at such a high rate of speed that when it hit me, it blew my leg open down to the muscle. And it was going so fast, though, that it cauterized all the veins. So there was no blood. So that's what I was looking at a muscle just literally throbbing. But there was no blood. I could just see all the layers of my skin going. So it was this really like bizarre, like feeling like I was like, it's still again, something I had never seen. And then I looked up. And that's when I saw Ian, who was the little eight-year-old boy, and he was leaned up against something, or he looked like he was kind of propped up. And I don't remember still to this day what he was propped up on, but he just looked really peaceful. He was just quiet and had his eyes closed and everything. And I thought, that's really weird. 
And then all of a sudden he just kind of convulsed once and then blood just came out of everywhere because a, a piece of the tree had come off and struck him in the head. And so he was sort of later pronounced dead at the scene, but they brought a helicopter in to bring him out. And I still thought he was going to be okay. But then they brought an ambulance in for me and they put me in it with his brother and sister. And then we drove to the nearest hospital, which was Kamloops. And from, sorry, from Connell again? Or no, no, sorry. We, we'd, from, we were at this summer camp near, um, where was it near? Um, I can't remember. The ambulance was dispatched from Barrier, BC. So you we're, about an hour. About yeah. an hour? Yeah, okay. yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So we had to come out this dirt road and then yeah. finally get there. And two, like the really weird things that kind of happened is Ian's parents had actually come out that day to the camp to see us. And we were like, this, you know, it's pretty bad out here. And they said to Ian, do you want to come home? And he's like, no, I'm going to stay with my brother and my sister and I'm going to stay here. And so they thought, okay. And as they were leaving, they were driving away. He ran after the car and he knocked on the window and they said, what's up? And he's like, I just wanted you to know that I love you like an eight-year-old doing that. Mm. And so, and then the other thing that was crazy is when the, the, the camp called, they were trying to get a hold of my parents and his parents and they got a hold of his parents and said, look, there's been a terrible accident at this camp. Um, your son is in really bad shape. We're airlifting him to Camloose uh, Hospital. And, um, and they said, was there anybody else hurt? And they said, yeah, there was a, a boy named Andrew Allen. We just can't get a hold of his parents. And they said, they're over here for dinner. So oh, they said, he's not critical. You guys need to get here right away. So my parents actually tidied up their place like from dinner. And then they got in the car and they drove down as well. So then they were there by the time I got there in the ambulance. And nobody told me about Ian until the next morning. And then the next morning, my parents kind of came in and they said he didn't make it. And so it was a very like, obviously dramatic event for me for, and, and for everybody involved. I mean, it was, you know, a 12 year old and an eight year old, both hit by the same tree at this summer camp and yeah, sort of changed the trajectory of all of our lives. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I get, I guess there's a few things I wanted to unpack from there. Uh, you know, one, I'm, I'm very obviously grateful that you made it through and the world is, has been blessed by you, uh, you know, from a technical standpoint, what happened to the tree? Like, was it just a complete and utter freak accident? Like, you it know, was, cause it was, there's a windstorm, like, no, there's no wind. There's nothing. It was, it was literally like when they went back and they looked at it, it looked like the roots had just, they were dead and nobody thought oh, we're going out to this summer camp out in the middle of the woods. Maybe we should check trees. Like there's mm -hmm. thousands of trees. It's British Columbia. So I don't fault anybody for not thinking that they should check all the trees, but yeah. it was just dead. And it was just the time that it decided to come down. When you said that, or when you shared this story and you shared how there were these interesting moments, the goodbye with the, I love you. When my very, very good friend, uh, passed away. I can't, I can't remember the year now, 2015, I think. And he had, he had a heart condition his whole life that I, I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. um, and he was an, he was a friend. He was, he was an investor in my companies and, and he was just someone I, I just, I cherish so much. And, uh, and so to me, it was, it was a very out of the blue situation. And his wife said he was driving down to Portland to pick up some machinery and, uh, and then his, his heart went out and my other, his cousin, my other very good friend was with him. And so oh. anyway, the point of that was that his wife had said that the morning before he left was like 
it was like the slowest morning they've ever had. And it was almost like, obviously he doesn't know this is going to happen, but it's almost like it was prolonging their time and almost inviting it to like not go. Like there was mm. these, this, this energy that was kind of holding him back at his house, mm. but you can't put two and two together. Right. No, no, it's not just like there's like a shift. And so when you describe that, it just reminded me exactly that moment that he had and, or that they had, I should say, which you know, there's questions about the nature of our human existence and why that might happen. Right. Yeah. For me, it took a long time to get over that. And I'll share you another, uh, another story later, but we're, because that's a very, very traumatic event. Where did you begin to understand the gravity of it, the weight of it as a traumatic event in your life? And how did you go about healing that or reconciling it? Hmm. I remember like there was, there was a few steps now looking back on it that I think were probably very important to me healing and getting through it. One of them, I remember going to the funeral and I was sitting beside one of the camp counselors from the camp. And I remember him saying to me, he's like, man, he's one of the lucky ones. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, he doesn't have to go through any of this mess anymore. And I was like, what? And I remember thinking like, I was kind of like taken aback by it because, but then that was a, a point for me to be able to make a decision, like in that moment going, well, I understand if you, cause it was like a Catholic camp. And so I understand that like, if you believe that there is something bigger controlling all of this and that there's peace in heaven and all these things, then, um, then I could understand where that comment came from. But at the same time, I felt like that was a turning point for me where I thought I have something, obviously I'm not there yet. So I have something that I have to do while I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't look at it as like, oh, life is just going to be a series of challenge after challenge after challenge. And I can't wait till I die. Instead, it was like, no, there's a, a whole bunch of great things that I get to see and accomplish and live through. And, and so I think that was one moment. Another moment for me is I remember staying at his family's house. My parents had gone away and my brother and I stayed over at their house. And I remember through their grieving process, they would continue to set the table for him as though he was there. And I've heard that that's like a thing that people do and it takes a while before they can actually fully let go. And that was another one of those moments where I thought, I, I don't want to keep something here over me that isn't here anymore. And so that was also a, almost like a, it felt like a freeing uh, saying like, you just, you got to do you, like you got to move forward. And, um, and it also, I mean, it taught me too that like when, when I go, I don't want, people holding on to me. Mm -hmm. I want them, you know, I want them to go, wow, what a great life. Like that's the tragic part, right? It's like, you know, when you think about an eight-year-old, it's like, what life did he get? He did leave, like he like left a legacy. He was a great kid. And like, you know, they're a wonderful family and I'm, I'm still friends with the family. And, um, but he didn't, he didn't get enough life. He didn't get enough chance to show what he was really made of and, and experience the things that this life has to offer. And so I think that a lot of that just continually gets in my head and makes me think like, I don't know what time we all have. And so I'm just going to try and use every piece of it the best way I can. Yeah. Very, um, uh, memento mori, you know, remember death, mm. which is 
I believe it's, it's, well, it's a stoic practice, right? To meditate on death as a reflection of being present in the moment. Mm. You know, there's a Marcus Aurelius quote that I'll paraphrase and butcher all at once, where he essentially he says that, you know, whether a man were to live 3,000 years or 30 minutes, the possession that we all have is the same. It's just the moment that we're living in at mm-hmm. that at that given moment. And obviously that's not totally true, right? We have our history and we know we have our dreams looking forward, but I don't know about you, mate, but the older I get, the more I I am finding myself a little bit more grounded in, in the moment. And it's yeah. kind of like things like what happened to you and your and your friend and and you get to a point where there's a lot of them and you just start to say, man, life does have those challenges. But if I don't choose to look at them as negative, if I choose to say those were the lessons that are reminding me constantly to be positive, to be in the now, to mm-hmm. be right here with my people, my my children, my lover, my parents, whoever it is, my, yeah, my yeah, concert, yeah. my fans, my that that is you know, that's the gift we all share. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when you you know, as a performer, I've never performed musically. Um, I attempted that once. <laughs> you know, my father's a singer. Yeah. And uh, when I was, I don't know, eight or 10, the family had a reunion and they asked me to, just assuming that as his offspring, I would, <laughs> I would have some jobs. And so they asked me to go up on stage and sing a song with him. And that was the last time I've ever been asked to come on stage and sing a song with him. But what, right? but what I'm getting at is like when you're performing, from what I can recall, whether it's you know acting or speaking or whatever the thing was, you're really just there. You're never anywhere else. Or, or, or are you? I've always wondered that as I'm posing uh, that as a question because you seem completely and utterly there. There's only you and the audience and the instruments. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I, there's definitely like the only other place that I am when I'm performing is thinking about what I'm going to do next, like how to keep the audience, or if I don't have the audience yet, then what it is that I could do that might draw them into me so that I can like, so I can communicate what it is I'm trying to communicate. So they listen. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's the only, that's the only other place that I really am. And like trying to think about the next song and that kind of stuff, but that's just kind of a, a workflow thing. I don't know. Like, cause otherwise, yeah, you're right. You can't like, you're not checking your phone. You're not thinking about like the holiday you're about to go on or the one you just came back from. You're just, you know, really thinking about like the audience, the music that you're playing, the parts, the band, you know, that's so you, you have an awareness, you know, cause the audience doesn't know if you've screwed something up, but you no do you're aware of those things I, and what you mentioned about inner like knowing that the audience is whether you have them or not is really interesting to me mm. what are you what are you sensing when when you're like shit i don't got them like they're there or at least some of these a good chunk of these people are still at their work and their heads are at their home and their heads and i need to bring them here what are you doing to shift that in the performance for them or you? I feel like um, it, that's taken a 
taken a change over the years. It used to be like, I was like, okay, there's like five people over there dancing. I'm going to try and encourage that action. So I'm going to play more upbeat music and try and get more laughs and more fun and more excitement. And as I've gotten older and maybe more mature in what it is that I'm trying to communicate. Now I go in often with an agenda where I think, you know what? I know the next song is a bit slower and a little more down. And so I need to somehow get them get them to a point where they can understand that on any given day at any given minute, they can have conversations with whoever they want for the next 45 minutes or an hour. Let me guide you through something that you normally wouldn't get to be guided through. So whether that's me saying something that's like funny or brings them into a song or it's a cover song that they know or bring them down into a song that's reflective and I want them to hear it and think about their own lives if they don't, if they're not open to that, it's really hard to bring them into it. But if there's a way early on to break that wall so that they know I can hear when they're talking <laughs> and, and I'm actually there just to entertain them and to give them like, you know, if you went to watch a ballet, you'd be quiet and you'd watch it because you'd be like, I'm experiencing culture, something I can't do. And I want to feel all the feelings that I can. And sometimes when we go watch live music, because, you know, there's so many so much programming of live music and like bars and places where it's not intentional that you listen to the act. They're just providing background fodder. And so it's important to me now at this point in my career and in this point in my life that I go into the majority of shows, especially if it's a ticketed event where people are actually coming to see me. If it's like a wedding and people are dancing, I just, I go with the flow and I'm like, Hey, let's just have fun. Yeah. But if it's like, people are actually wanting to see me and hear what it is that I've created, then I really try and draw them into that. And if they're not there, you know, I would never embarrass people off the stage, but I would definitely try to encourage them because of the people that are listening that, you know, maybe they can take their conversation elsewhere. So it's not distracting because I definitely feel like the words that I share now through my music at this point are less focused on, I hope this makes you feel good to, I hope this makes you think. Yeah. Yeah. Two questions, but we'll start with this being something that you've really worked hard on where you you just weren't the performances that you were doing. You're like, I'm losing people. Something's not happening. I need to figure out a way or did it just, and, and did, then did you kind of come up with this plan, this way that you do it now, or did it just kind of happen? Like, was it just an evolution alongside your career? It just kind of happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even when I was young and I was playing piano, I got to play classical piano and that's what I was learning. And I, you know, see somebody's piano at their house and there'd be a bunch of friends over and I start playing it and everybody peaced out. So then I started playing Disney songs and everybody joined me and sang. So I was like, oh, and it was that feeling <laughs> that I enjoyed. So I was like, okay, so I'm not just a musician. I'm also an entertainer. And I, I definitely will take people, you know, I'll, I'll be like, okay, I bet if I, and this is in the back of my head while I'm singing a song, this is kind of a more somber song. I can see that people are drifting a little. Mm -hmm. I'm going to switch up my set a little bit, put in something really, really fun. So they're very engaged. And then that way, then I can deliver the next song that I really want them to listen to. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of, that's been an unconscious conscious thing, but also from touring with different artists, I have a friend named Matt Epp who I think is phenomenal. And he was playing a bar show way back in the day. I was on tour with him and nobody was listening. Like they were just like, everybody was chatting. So Instead, what most artists would do is they'd turn up, right? They'd turn up their guitar, turn up their vocal, and they'd sing louder. Instead, he unplugged his guitar and he walked to the front of the stage and he started singing in a very normal, like normal tone of voice. And everybody's like, oh shit, that guy's singing. We gotta shh, shh, shh. 
and they all got quiet and they listened to him. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That awesome. <laughs> and I haven't had the guts to do that, but I'll definitely like bring things down instead of bringing them up. And I think that was a, that was a neat thing that I learned from him. Did he learn it from someone or, you know, I don't know. I have no idea. He was, uh, I never asked him why he did it. I just thought it was phenomenal that he did. Sometimes that just happens. You just, you're just, again, like the idea of being totally present. And then all of a sudden it's like from God or whatever into you. And then you just do it. Right. And that's sometimes the most magic. And, and that leads to the second part of what I was going to say, which you touched on, uh, which is this idea of really being an entertainer. I've seen you play, I'm going to say three times okay. live. Yeah. But the most recent time, I noticed more than ever your, your ability to just talk to the audience, a bit of a banter, a bit of a comedic touch, which... You know, I've been to lots of concerts. You know, Bono is the worst at trying to uh, <laughs> talk to the audience. You know, Chris Martin knows when to, you know, knows just just enough to kind of go to the next song. Whereas you talk like you, like it almost becomes this variety, not a variety show, you no know, magic tricks, but there's there's this element that I, I guess I don't know what you would call it, but I just felt so drawn into you as an individual, not just you as your music because of what you did. So back to sort of the same line of the questioning is how did you come to, to bring that into the act and hone that skill so well? I mean, part of it, I think is just like ADD. I just get distracted and I start talking to people and then stuff comes up. And then I remember this other story and I'm like, oh, I should tell you about this too. And I'm like, oh, crap, I should probably actually, I should probably stop. And when people are, it's funny because when, especially here in Canada, um, we are trained from so young to like keep your hands at your sides. And when we're in choir in school, you don't move, you stand with your hands at your sides. And when you're at church, unless it's Pentecostal, it's like you're not really clapping after the songs. And like we don't just jump into it. Like we don't just get into the music. So when I'm performing, a lot of the time people look like statues. They're not clapping along or like bopping around because they, they it's not a learned trait or they've they've de-learned it or whatever. Whereas with conversation, once I start talking, and if somebody thinks it's funny, they outwardly laugh. Right. And so before you know it, you've got this conversation, these people are listening and they're really engaged. And so now that's like music is definitely a language that I speak and it's one that I like to communicate with. But as far as call and response, I like to be able to actually talk to people. And this is going back probably back in like 2008 or 2009 um, when I first started playing solo. And I remember I was playing this coffee shop in Port Moody and this booking agent, I had invited him to come out to the show and because I was hoping he would get me some shows. And he worked for Feldman. And so it was a big, you know, booking agency. And he came out and afterwards he sat and had a coffee with me. And, he, and I was surprised he even came out, but he was like, you know what, dude, he's like, you have that thing that can't be taught. He's like, I, we work with artists all the time and I cannot teach them to have banter or to have conversation. Mm-hmm. He's like, the thing that you need to learn is just when to stop because <laughs> he's like, you, you could literally just keep going. And he's like, and also don't be afraid of the harder things. So I see that you you go down the road of light stuff and you have good laughs with people, but 
because they're willing to listen to you, don't be afraid to tell them the stuff that is also hard and the stuff that hurts a little bit more. And the stuff, if you have pain in one of your songs, tell the truth. And like, you'll be able to, he's like, you'll have that unlearnable sense of how to flow a concert so that people can actually feel emotion based on what you want them to feel. And I was like, Oh, okay. So that, that all of a sudden took on a new responsibility for me where I was a little more structured in how I would actually communicate different stories. And some of the stories now have, they've lasted for years. They're actually the stories that go with the song. And when I say this, you know, I'm about to sing the song, I tell the story and sometimes they evolve and change. And somebody shouts something from the audience and it turns into something different. Other times people will be like, you've told that story before. I'm like, yeah. And I've played the song before too. Like, <laughs> I don't change the song every time. I've, I've played this song 3000 times. Like yeah. <laughs> you're not complaining about that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in your honest opinion, if, if is Canada, the stiffest is, is it like Euro oh. Euro America? Like where, where are the best audiences for, just they just the inhibitions are gone or is it just alcohol related like where <laughs> uh, <laughs> um i mean i feel like definitely like canada's a little stiff west coast is actually a little stiff which is surprising because it's so yoga focused and like you know Every very health and wellness <laughs> and you'd think everybody would just be like yeah let's just like let's just sing and dance and have fun um i find the more east you go like when you get into quebec and stuff like that that's a like the culture there is much more engaged and in your face and in a good way. And, but being like traveling through the U S and touring in those markets, you definitely have a lot more like aggressive, like excitement <laughs> where people yeah, right. like, they're excited about something. So they shout it out. They like that you, you sang something they thought was cool. And then they give you that. And uh, the only other place I could say is like in the UK, um, I wouldn't say necessarily that they're like as much in the world of foot tapping and like, and movement like they are in the U S sometimes, but they listen, like they come up at, like you start playing in a bar there and they mm -hmm. come up and they're like, where'd you come from? What is this? This is great. We love this. Oh my gosh. And then they'll rally their friends up and they'll like, they sometimes in Canada, and this is not a bash to Canadians. I love Canada, but sometimes in Canada, we've been so programmed that we need to be told if the song is good. So whether that comes from a radio station or from a Spotify playlist or like a thing on YouTube that's blown up and been shared everywhere. That's sometimes for, for a lot of people, they go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and I've heard that song. So you must be, this, you must be good then. I should listen to you now. Whereas in the UK, they're like, I don't really care if it's on Spotify or on the radio. I like it. And so I like it because I heard it and I want to, I'm going to chase this. And that was the big difference that I found touring there to touring here. That's probably culturally similar in Canada versus Europe and, and the UK and, and maybe America, I, I can't say for certain there to our politics, to, to just about anything, mm. you go to Europe, people have a very educated specific opinion and they're not afraid to share it. And they're not afraid to debate it. Whereas I find here, uh, at least okay, I'll speak for myself. It's, it's been more fed to me, similar to what you say, yep. well, the radio is telling me my songs. Yeah. And I learned that, you know, when I was traveling and you're like, well, I don't have an opinion of the world like these people do, yeah. you know, whether European, etc. And then it's not just an opinion. It's, it's a very intelligent one, whether I agree with it or not. Yeah. I don't know where that, you know, comes into us as we're brought up in the world, <laughs> but yeah. it's just funny you made that comment. Cause then I'm like, 
And the other thing too on that is if you think about, you brought up the West Coast being stiff and this is not limber. I, I, you didn't accuse them of being stiff. I, I, I have heard from friends who have traveled here who love our mountains, who love our ocean, who love our skiing, find that Vancouver and the West Coast is one of the least fun, lively places to visit in terms of drinking, late night, uh, oh, yeah. late night events. You know, there's a stiffness to where we're more interested in that yoga class in get going up the mountain early and skiing than yeah. we are in, you know, versus other parts of the world. So maybe that plays into the music scene as well. I would think so. I mean, if you think like, like I remember living in Vancouver or maybe, oh, I don't, maybe I wasn't living in Vancouver at the time, but I remember the whole big bylaw that was being passed that right. um, patios needed to shut down at 10 because <laughs> of the people that live downtown. I was like, then why do you live downtown? Like you live downtown for that energy and for that nightlife. Like you're downtown Toronto, the clubs close at two or four, whatever it is. And people come out and it's loud. And that's like, that's part of the culture. And I like, I don't know, for me, there's something in that, that I, I think is like awesome. And I want that, like that energy. And if I don't, then I move out of the city and I yeah. live in suburbia and I have, you know, my neighbor that I complain about instead. <laughs> it's true. You know, we have Vancouver is one of the most densely populated downtowns in a lot of the, a lot of the North America in terms of a true downtown yeah. where the business center meets, you know, the residential. Yeah. yeah. You know, Calgary, they're leaving. They're trying to change that. Chicago, it's not the same. You know, LA is definitely not the same. Oh, no, not at all. But yet that they just, they suck it out. And, and COVID to, I guess, to its credit, be, brought, I don't know if any of this stuff stayed, but some of the bylaws in the parks where you're allowed to bring wine to the parks, mm -hmm. a lot more outdoor seating. I, I probably still limited on the time it shuts down, but just bringing, bringing that energy out into the streets a little bit more. And yeah. it, it just, it felt good. I remember last summer is, you know, you're out and it's like, oh, this reminds me of other places I've been where people are actually having a good time. So, well, and you know, the more that we encourage it, um, there'll definitely be like a little crest we have to get over where people are just debaucherous and hammered. But, yeah. but once you get through that, I mean, when you tour Europe or when you tour through the UK and stuff like that, yeah, there's still like people getting drunk, but it's like, for the most part, people are pretty responsible. They bring their wine out. They bring their picnic blankets out. They make some food with a whole big group of people. They play Frisbee, they pack it up and they go home. It's lovely. Like, whereas here it's like, <laughs> You bring a bottle of wine out, you got a bylaw officer right down your neck going, I'm going to give you a ticket. And you're like, well, you're not coming to my birthday. Yeah, right. <laughs> I bet you're no fun. <laughs> oh, Vancouver. Oh, man. I just, you, you brought up something about coach, coachability, really. And I was curious about this in the music industry, where you, you had a teaching moment when the, um, sorry, he was a, uh, an agent or booking agent, a booking agent. Yep. Yeah. And he, he gave you some, some tips. Yeah. In your career, how, how heavy is the hand of the influence positively and negatively in terms of saying, here's how we need you to be Andrew Allen as a performer. Mm -hmm. And you learn from that and it's good. And, and where it goes too far in the industry and you don't have to throw anybody under the bus. I'm just, I'm just curious right. in general. I mean, it's an interesting industry, probably not unlike a lot of other ones, but it's funny because what I've always noticed and so many artists sing about it, there's a song by Pink where she's like, 
LA told me you'll be a big star if you just change everything you are. And she's referring, <laughs> yeah. to, LA, she's referring to LA Reed, who is a phenomenal record executive and um, happened to be the CEO of Epic Records when I was no longer allowed to be with Epic Records. But, um, <laughs> but he, him and I, we didn't even cross paths or anything like that. So I'm, I'm not throwing him under the bus. I don't know the guy. But um, what I do know is that a lot of artists they will create in their basements or in their bedrooms or in their living rooms or whatever it is. And they draw from all of this experience and the influences that they've had. And a lot of the ones that really break, they're not the ones that are going, I want to sound just like this artist, or I want to do exactly what that artist is doing. They're just doing it because it's the art and they just don't have any other choice in their psyche. Like that's what they have to create. So they create this unique and special like art and then you get somebody in the industry, like a label head that goes, oh my gosh, this is great. We want this because this is unique and different and interesting. And then they get you and then they go, okay, here's the stylist you're going to work with. Here's this person. We're going to do this. And we want you to work with all of these different writers, even though these are the writers that wrote all the songs with you that we were interested in. Now we want you to write with our writers who have been in the industry for so long that there's a very good chance they're not going to get outside the boxes that they've put themselves in. So to me, it's always been this super confusing thing where like, don't ruin a good thing. It almost would be better if you got an artist in and if you were like, oh yeah, we can make money off this artist. We're going to exploit this artist and they're going to become very, very famous, but then somehow shield them from that so that they can go back and make their second album before they actually know they're famous. Mm -hmm. Because then they start worrying like, well, what's the second album going to be like? And what if people don't like what I do? And then it's the artist as well that starts to have no say because they start second guessing everything, even though it was their initial guesses that brought them to the table. And so, and I mean, that's me speaking. Also, I know that I did it where it's like, you know, I did, I just went on, I just did it myself. And then all of a sudden I got signed and then I was working with like a producer and having an, you know, a record label chirping in my ear telling me, well, we need this kind of song. We need this kind of song. And I'm like, that's weird. There's nobody telling me what kind of song I needed when you were interested in me. And now you're telling me what I'm because the majority of the people that are in charge of the creative industry are entirely not creative. So, and granted, and business people, right? Like, yeah, and that's kind of important because really a lot of creative people are not great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I understand, I understand where it comes from, but it's, um, I wouldn't say that it's always the most positive thing unless you can find the right team. And they believe in you the way you are. Where where are they getting it from? Where are they saying, you know, if you look at, okay, go back to politics for a bit, right? Populist politics is big right now, trending that way where it's like, let's drip out what we think the pop population wants and then base our decisions based on what they've given us. Is it sort of similar? It's like, well, these five guys did a song like this and those did well. That's Therefore, that's what we need. Or are they looking for the holes because somebody did those five songs? Like where, where are yeah. they getting that? I think you have both because I think both will both will create success if you um, and they look at it that way. So if it's somebody who doesn't want to take big risks, just like a stockbroker or a stock market guy, yep. then they might go, OK, this this series of songs definitely worked. So, Andrew, we need you to do this kind of song. And then you've got the other guys over here that are like, we need to find something to fill in that gap. But then that's a harder like that's a harder connection to make if yep. you're like. You know, I remember getting, um, we used to get hit lists when I was uh, working with Sony and um, basically they were like, these are the songs or sorry, these are the artists that are looking for songs and they would have notes on them. They're looking for songs like, 
And then it would have different artists. And I always used to think it was so funny because prior to those artists becoming famous, not the ones looking for songs, but the ones that they said, we want songs like Adele. Before Adele, Adele was just Adele. And like, she was just writing songs. And all of a sudden now she's the one that people want to write songs like, but she only has that opportunity now because she wrote songs that other people weren't writing. Mm -hmm. And so I remember there was an artist that I had a duet with and the record label said, no, we don't want her on the lay. We don't want her on the duet because at the time I was signed and she wasn't signed. And so they said, we don't want her on the, on the thing because she's not famous and she's not, we don't really know if she's going to be anything. And then fast forward, like two years later, she got very famous and all of a sudden those hit lists were like, we want songs like that artist. Oh. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Just take a chance, guys. Take a chance. <laughs> Man, that's really, I mean, I guess it is as I, I thought it was and to an extent. And, and the sad part is, is you're, like, you're like, you're right. The ones that real the things, whether it's, whether it's an artist and a career or just a song or just an album, what breaks through is raw. What's, what's most personal, what's most raw to that artist. And you'll have a few copycats and those will work. Yeah. The first few will. But yeah, but after that, it gets, it just gets tired. It just reminds yeah. me of, um, you know, when Anthony Bourdain, I, I just read his oral biography. And when he was very, very successful and famous, one, he was able to maintain a high degree of creative control or influence a lot, a lot because people were scared of him and a lot because he was very talented, but it allowed him to be authentically who he was creatively, who he was, which led him to be very successful. And then every single pitch, you know, obviously not every single one, but that would come to the network. I don't know, CNN or whatever it would be. I want to do the Anthony Bourdain of this. And the execs would be like, well, you can't because you're not Anthony Bourdain. So what are you going to do the you of? That's yours yeah. to bring into the world, right? Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't work to cop. Well, I see, like you said, it does work a little bit to copycat, but authenticity yeah. to, to yourself, not in relation to others, just being true to the music and, and how you, you, what you want to create. Yeah. It reminds me of, are you familiar with James Bay? Yeah. Not like crazy familiar. I know his music a little bit, but you know, hold back, hold back the river scars need the sun to break. Like his, his first album or album and a half was so good. Mm. And then, and he had this long hair and this goofy hat. Yeah. Kind of was like a emo Johnny Depp vibe, you know, but, and then his next album was like, he wasn't even the same person. Yeah. And I'd see him in interviews and it was like he was trying to say the things like I'll give you one example. They were asking him why he cut his hair mm. and he was trying to give an, a reason. And to me, watching that interview, it was like. You're you want to say that the freaking record label made you cut your hair, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you're not saying that. And it just yeah. is like it's just reading so awkward. And I haven't I don't I haven't followed him since, but I, I felt so sad. Yeah wondering if that's what had happened you know yeah well and if it wasn't just answer just be like i wanted to cut it yeah right who cares like maybe that was the truth who knows it just it just didn't feel it felt yeah anyway i you know so how have you you know where have you stumbled you you mentioned that you know maybe it was your sophomore album that you you felt the pressure 
where have you stumbled and how have you actually you know what? No, we're going to go back a little bit farther and then we're going to go there. Walk me, walk me or paint me a picture of what, whatever the year was that Sony Epic signs this deal for you. The dream of dreams for every artist, right? I, I've lived with, you know, my, my father mm-hmm. for 40 years, you know, trying to make it as a musician, yeah. you know, assuming make it is get a record deal. Yeah. Walk me through what's happening for you in that moment in time leading up to it and, and just what it was like to get that deal done with Epic. It's funny, you know, um, I think when I, so I was, I, I had already released the song Loving You Tonight to radio in Canada and I had financed it myself and um, which is not cheap, especially when you have no money. And so I had <laughs> put, the, put the album out or put the single out and it was through that single that a manager in New York he heard the song, saw that it was climbing the charts. And so he reached out and said, I want that song for my artist. And I said, no, it's my song. And he's like, what? No, no, no. Like you're nobody. And this guy has sold 300,000 copies of his first single. He needs another single. I, he should cut it. And I'm like, no. And he's like, where are you? I like, do you perform? I'm like, I do. And he's like, where are you? I'm like, well, I'll be in Toronto tomorrow night. He's like, all right, I'm coming out to the show. Um, can you please put me on the list? I'm like on the list. And I was playing the free times cafe. It's like <laughs> seats. And I didn't read the small print in my contract with the free times that I was the one supposed to take the money at the door. So I didn't even charge anybody. Everybody got in for free. And I was like, Oh, dang it. So I made like no money. And this manager shows up and he watches me and he's like, wow, you're actually pretty good. I'm like, Oh, thanks. Then he goes, he says, you know, let's, um, I want to bring you to New York and meet some people. I'm like, I'm busy, man. Like I got my own stuff going on. Like, Maybe you're where, a real deal. Maybe you're not. Where and, did that come from? Just let me stop you for a second. Like, where did the balls come from to just be like, that's my song. Nope. He can't have it. Nope. You, you know, you're broke. You've just spent all this money on this thing. Yeah. And somebody's willing to give you a few pennies for it. Like, well, cause no, well, that's the thing is like, it wouldn't, they don't buy songs. It's more like they, I would say, yes, that artist can cut it, which means I would no longer be allowed to sing it mm. pretty much. And then I would hope that it would do something. And then I would get royalties from his song but even then i didn't know all that i didn't know how it all worked and so it wasn't that i had like these balls of steel where i was like yeah i'm gonna go in there i didn't know i didn't know that that was like a thing yeah and sunned so, your balls before that over that conversation it, and they were just pumping with testosterone that's right yeah right <laughs> no i was like i don't know i mean yeah it just seemed kind of crazy to me and i was like no, like I've, I've already put this money in the songs doing well at radio. I think it's going to really do something. So unless you can bring me to the States and you can get me famous in the States, I don't want to give my song away. Yeah. And I had booked the summer shows that I wanted and all this stuff. Well, not that I wanted, I just booked a bunch of summer shows, but in my head, that was the biggest thing I had done yet. Like these shows were better than other shows I had done because my song was doing well. So in my opinion, I was like, I'm winning, I'm doing great. So I don't have time just to come to New York. I can't even see a gap in my schedule where I could come because I didn't understand what exactly he wanted. So at the end of the summer, I flew to the UK and I <laughs> I went to tour there, but my visa had expired. So I actually got kicked out and sent back, <laughs> sent back to Canada. And then I, I had a phone message from this manager and he said, look, I got you. I got you a showcase with Sony and with Epic and with a couple other record labels. And I need you to come to New York. Let me know when you're back from the UK. So I called him. I was like, look, I'm, I'm back. <laughs> He's like, that was short. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> He's like, All right, you're coming down to New York. So I went down to New York and I showcased. And I remember being in the room at Epic Records. And at the time, the CEO was Amanda Ghost. And she's sort of famous for having written the song Beautiful for James Blunt. Well, with James Blunt. And um, 
she was saying something about um, she was like, oh, this must be so exciting for you and whatever. And I was still so narrow minded that I was like, I guess if you guys want to come on board, that's awesome. But like, if you don't, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. And they're like, what the hell? Like, OK, so then I ended up going to Mexico because I had played a show and the guy paid, paid me an air miles and a condo. This is like this is how little money I had is that I was just like, <laughs> I would take anything. So when I was there, I got offered the two deals, one with Sony and one with Epic. And I kind of like started negotiating it with a lawyer and they finalized the whole thing. But in my mind, the job was just starting. Now I had this team of people that they were asking me to write an entire album within a certain amount of time. Here I am in Vernon. They're orchestrating it from New York. And my manager is also in New York. And so I'm like, I don't even who's recording this. What am I doing? And it felt so overwhelming. And as much as I should have been like so excited, I was terrified and I had so much anxiety around it because I was like, now like there's people that are expecting something before it was just me. And I just had to like, you know, write the best songs, perform the best songs. And I got them on radio and I was like, I'm doing all right. Whereas now all of a sudden there's these people that like, they could just as easily shelve me and all the songs that I write, I wouldn't even be able to release. So now it's me putting in all this creativity and not trying to look at the negative, but I had seen so many artists that just disappeared because they like wrote an album. It was awesome. But then the record label was like, no, we're not putting it out. We're not putting it out. We're not putting it out. Three years later, they haven't toured. Nobody cares about them. And so I was like, I've got to kill this thing. Like, this is where the time starts. And I remember different family members being like, you've got to really embrace it. It's so exciting. And I'm like, shut up. I need to like work harder than I've ever worked right now. Don't get in my way. Do you thrive in that pressure? Is that no, your- I hate it. No, okay. no. <laughs> no, some, no people, I- some people do. Some people yeah. need the deadline, right? They need yeah. that arrow on their back or whatever to- Well, I do need, I need the deadline. I think it's just, I don't need the, um, I'm somebody who is very much like, I'm not going to celebrate until it's time to celebrate. Yeah. So, you know, fast forward a bunch of years, I ended up getting a song in a Folgers coffee commercial and it, I was like, that's amazing. But it was one of those things where I was like, I hadn't been paid for it yet. And I'd written it with a friend of mine and neither of us had been paid yet. But when we got paid and the TV commercial came out, then we went out for a really expensive dinner and we took a limo down and we're like, this is awesome. Like, (laughs) but I had to, I had to have that money in the bank. I can't be like, I'm not somebody that's like, oh, I'm going to celebrate before it's there. And so I think with this record label thing, it was like, great. They want me to record an album Well, the album's not done. And when the album's done and it's been paid for and it's released, and then I all of a sudden go on tour with like great acts, then I'm going to start celebrating when all those things start to like, they explode. But until then, it's still time to work because I don't believe that I've, if I'm celebrating, it means I've done. Yeah. Well, what's the process on that? Is it, because I understand it's different for different artists. Did yeah. they say you find your studio, you find all of that. And then you pay for it. We'll write you a check after you send me the receipts as it is like. It's very vague, actually. It, it was is very... vague. Oh, yeah. I think it's, you know, I'm, I work with a, a bunch of different artists. Like I write with them and stuff and they have record deals. And one of the artists just recently, they're like, oh, we got this great opportunity to go to LA to do this wicked photo shoot with this amazing photographer. So we just took it. We just went and then we sent the bill to our record label. I'm like, uh, were they fine with it? He's like, well, they would have never paid for it, but they were fine with it now because we have a good relationship with them. But the record <laughs> labels are always so far behind on brainstorming all these things and like, what should we do with them? So the artist, as much as it sort of seems like, oh, you signed to a label, you can just sit back. It's like, no, now you like, 
you have a bank. You just have to try and figure it out. So yeah, I had to find a producer and I, I used the one that I had used for loving you tonight. And then like went and booked a place downtown Vancouver and like was trying to just like, yeah, hustle and grind and, and make sure that I wrote all the songs for the album. And um, my manager was really good about making sure that the finances were sorted and that kind of stuff. But it just seemed so far away. I didn't see anybody. There was no A&R from the label. I wasn't going into a studio. I didn't know. And it wasn't like, right. it just, it all felt like very much like I was very alone. And then my family also was like, they're supportive, but they were so excited for me. And they thought you've made it. I'm like, I haven't done anything yet. Mm. <laughs> like, it's still got to come. And that, I think that that's a mature mindset that you secretly had. That you, mm. you know, maybe you didn't, it reminds me of Jewel, not in the exact same way, but when she got that million dollar offer, she talked about it on, on Rogan and how right. she was similar to you, just playing her, doing her thing. She was just playing at a coffee shop. And then a guy came down and is like, we need this person because the coffee shop was selling out. She was living out of her car and they offered her a million dollars. But then and she didn't have a lawyer. She starts reading through the fine print. And she realizes it's, it's an advancement. Mm. So every she's essentially now indebted to if she takes the deal, she's now indebted to the label for a million bucks until they've sold enough albums and different. And, and she rejected that deal. Right. Wow. Imagine going from living in your car to having the gusto to like reject a deal. You just sound like you had a similar head on your shoulders. Your parents did a good job, Andrew. <laughs> I'll let them know. <laughs> I, and, and also that you embraced that it was about the work. The, mm. That is what mattered was the creative work that you were doing. Mm. And I respect that because we get caught up in the glitz and the glamour. And celebration is good. I got cigars that I've never smoked because I keep pro- postponing what qualifies as the having earned that cigar moment. Yes. Uh, man. And so you've done this. You've, you've signed the deal. You've, you've, you've said, okay, I have to create this, this great album. Yeah. What is, when you do that, what is your creative process to write this music to to put this out and make it what you want it to be is there is there a process is there a routine does your life look different are you disheveled and drinking whiskey and sleeping on the floor or are you running every morning like what's the what does that look like um that one was different that doing that album was different because i was working with ryan stewart great producer and a really great songwriter and um, he had worked with other artists that have had record deals and that kind of thing. And he's like, look, we're, this is the kind of song we're short on. We need a, we need another upbeat one. You need another single. You need something to come out after loving you tonight. That's just as strong or stronger. So we need to write that. I wasn't super previously. I had only ever, the only songs, the first song I ever co-wrote was loving you tonight. I'd always just written songs by myself. Mm. And so that was my first co-writing experience. And now I'm going into doing an album co-writing and so I, there's, you know, there's probably parts of me that were like, oh, Ryan knows better than I do. I need to just trust what he says. And he's not like that. Like he's a super like humble, gracious guy, but he's also extremely talented. And, um, but I, I was so young and so new to it. And that's like, you know, seeing how it works now, like, so when I, I just released a new album and I wrote probably four or five songs before I even like decided I was going to do the album. Um, whereas back then I only had like loving tonight and then the previous album, which I wasn't going to re-record that stuff. I was going to do a whole new collection of music, but then I was like, okay, if I'm doing a whole album, I need like 40 songs 
and then I'm going to whittle them down to 10. So I get the best. Really? And so, oh, and so then I big of a cut down. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, Rachel Platten wrote a hundred songs before she got fight song. And then she went, you know, then finally her manager was like, there, we finally have the single. After a hundred, my, my daughters uh, play that song on the way to karate every, every Sunday and Monday. So good. <laughs> but uh, so it's, yeah, I, I realized that I did it so much differently this last time because I, I hit up all the co-writers I knew and said, listen, I've, I've got some grant money. I'm going to be doing a new record. Um, I'd like to write a song with you. And so I was on different zoom rights and in-person rights, like, you know, Oh, like three times a week kind of thing, four times a week. And when I was living in Los Angeles and I was just writing people that were working on albums, they did that. They came and they worked with us and we would write, they would write with me and then they'd write with the next guy and then they'd write with the next guy and the next guy. So that you'd have this huge collection of songs to choose from. Whereas like, I had no idea that's what happened back then. So I literally just wrote the whole album with Ryan Stewart. And, and it was like, you know, I think we came up with some cool stuff, but um, it was, uh, it wasn't like I was digging into the roots of where I came from and going like, okay, I need to, this is what I need to say. Yeah. You know, some of them were stories and some of them were thoughts that I had gone through and stuff. And some of them were, were deeper, meaningful songs. But for the most part, we kind of, we did like, we just took the production that we had done on loving you tonight. And then we kind of applied it to every other song. So the whole album would sound cohesive. Mm -hmm. And if I were to do that again, I'd be like, no, no, I think we need to like, you know, serve each song accordingly. Cause it's going to sound the same if I'm singing it. So, you know, that's, that's interesting. Cause when, you know, I've done a few things for TV and, and, and that formula that you just talked about with the co- trying to create the cohesiveness saying, what are the tenets of this so that every episode feels like it's the same vibe, yeah. even if it has a different story or yeah. something like that. And I, I am curious, very curious when you're writing lyrics to a song, you specifically, I guess in general, how different is it than say writing poetry and are you, or prose, short form prose and, and are you just, are you carrying around a journal? Like, like, a, like one of those things, you got like a pocket and you can flip it out and, or you type in in your notes. Like, is it like, are you writing that always? It, it can't, you can't turn it once the, once the ideal well is uh, faucet is turned on, it doesn't turn off until that song is done. Is that how it is for you? Um, it used to be more inspiration driven. Now it's uh, like, it's still inspiration driven. If inspiration is like a thing that hits me, I'm like, well, okay, I got to write that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other day I had a tough conversation with somebody and got off the phone with them and I was working on something else. And uh, I had my guitar out and I just started strumming this thing. And these words just came to my head and they came so fast that I just quickly hit record on my phone and just literally mumbled out the words. And then I turned the phone back on with the play button on. And then I dictated what it was that I had just sang. Cause I didn't, it was so like spur of the moment. Like it just came out and I was like, okay, I got to I obviously this is the thing I got to go with, but there is also a discipline to it. I think. And that's the, that's the, um, that's the discipline of the art and Ed Sheeran talks about it in his documentary and how it is like the pipes in the UK and how you need to write every single day. And that's the muddy water that comes out. And then eventually when it starts to run clear, then you keep writing and you keep writing. That's when your best stuff comes out. And I find that as of late, I'm so much more intentional about what I'm writing, why I'm writing it, and how it's going to get finished. And I stay really focused on the song. And if I'm in a co-writing session and it's going kind of like, 
I don't identify with that or I can't connect to that, then I'll be like, Hey, you're going to have to go with this part and I'll, I'll try and see if it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. But otherwise I'm, and that's not the way I used to write. It used to be much more like, I just kind of go where it went and be like, okay. And I still was very much like, I got to finish the song because if you finish the song, you put a period at the end, then you're allowed to go to the next one. (laughs) I always feel like if you, if you don't finish it, you're not, (laughs) you gotta, you have to, you have to do the work and finish it. I'm, I'm, I'm very similar to that when I'm writing, I I have to finish something before I can move on. And I guess just to kind of quickly circle back to the first part of that question that I jumbled up there was, is it when you're structurally thinking of a song, let's take out the, maybe you can't separate the music, but again, I go back to poetry. Is there, is there a different art to writing the lyrics to a song than there is to writing a poem? Or prose, or is it just almost the same thing? You just got to put music to it. I think it's different. In my head, it's different because when I write poetry, I don't worry so much about a chorus that repeats. And in pop music, most music, um, if you have a chorus, that's got to be the the thing that every line in the song points to in some way, shape, or form. And in a poem, it doesn't. Like a poem, it could just you know the general theme of the poem could give you the story. Whereas, you know, in a, you need a pop chorus if you're going to have a pop song. And Mm -hmm. I find in my, the way that I write, typically people are always like, Oh, does the lyric or the melody come first? And it's like, I do have notes on my phone where if I think of something or hear something, I quickly write it down. And I need to have, especially from co-writing with somebody, I need to have a very solid idea of what the hell we're writing about, because otherwise we could, what would you could write about a cat? I'm writing about llamas. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's, that part is, is kind of the first part, but then um, typically we go into a bit of a vibe. Like I don't want to write like super happy lyrics over a really sad vibe. And then once I kind of get like a little bit of a melody coming out of my face, as far as like what, this is what I would sing to then in some ways it's actually about putting the words to that melody so that it fits. And whereas like poetry, it's sort of more of a flow. You're just kind of like, as long as it flows, it feels right. Whereas in a song, it's like, we want different things to line up. We want them to be symmetrical. We want them to be repetitive because you want people to remember it. And, um, and so I think that's where the big differences are is that there is structure in songwriting that like the poetry angle um, to be able to tell the story poetically is very important. But, um, but with limited real estate, with certain amounts of notes, we definitely have a different challenge. I was talking with my, uh, with an author, a guy I co-authored my book with, but he's, he's got lots of, published books and um, I shouldn't say my book, our book. And he was talking a lot about structure and pointing towards a story, writing, writing, sort of pointing towards something at the very beginning and how it's one of the most common mistakes authors make is they don't know what they could be the, the best writer in the world, but they don't know what they're writing towards. Right. And it, and it, it gets lost. And, He's also, he also owns a publishing company and they have to go back and they got to insert the, and edit it, you know, the story back into the great writing. And, and, and that's just, you know, sort of sells the point that no matter what you're doing, that having the end in mind a little bit is, is really critical. And I guess it leads yeah. me to my next question, which is around how do you show up when you're co-writing, especially mm. when you're co-writing with different personalities, not yeah. necessarily different music genres, someone who's very different from somebody else. Hmm. Ryan Tedder is really funny. He talks about how when he, and he's like one of the greatest songwriters in the world. And he, um, 
when he goes into a songwriting session, he assumes that he's the worst one in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's like ridiculous because he's written so many massive hit songs that I'm like, dude, come on. Now. Is he one Republic? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 So he's written huge, huge, huge songs. I don't go into songwriting sessions thinking I'm the worst. <laughs> in fact, I used to probably subconsciously go in thinking like, I don't really know what I'm doing. Why am I here? And now I go into it. I go into it prepared with a few ideas, but if somebody has an idea that I think is stronger, then I'll chase that idea. But I would say that my role has started to develop as like the guy that's like, that doesn't make sense. Like that lyrically, that doesn't, I know what we're trying to say. Like, I almost like to be the guy that's like, Hey, let's talk out the story that we're trying to say here. And then I'm going to keep us focused on going back to that every time. So when we write a lyric, say we're writing a song about how, like, I broke up with this girl because she was mean. We don't want to be like, all of a sudden, like we derail and we're like, Oh, like, and you bought me flowers and I, whatever. It's like, no, she's mean. Stick with She's mean. Like go back to that. And I'm, so I would say that now my role in in songwriting is still very the top line, the melody and the lyric, um, but also the focus to try and keep people on task. And if it's people with different personalities, there's times where that can be really challenging in like a one-on-one co-write. Mm-hmm. If it's an artist that I'm writing with and ultimately they're the one that's going to sing the song, then often I will be like, I'll just try and help you shape it. Because if I don't agree with your idea, but it's something that you would sing, mm-hmm. then okay, like we'll go down that road. I'll just make sure it's a great song around that idea. If you're in, I've definitely done it where I'm in a songwriting session where like there's three of us and uh, there's one person in the room that can be like, it's very difficult to deal with, or they're not listening or they're just uh, any contribution they're making. It's like, are, did you hear, we just said, we're not talking about that anymore. And now you're still talking. I don't really understand. And so there's definitely been times where me and the other co-writer, especially if it's like a mature co-writer, we'll just kind of like bulldoze the session. And then at the end of it, the artist often is like, ah, this is a great song. And we're like, yeah, did up. I think of all that? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, sure, man. If you think you did, you go for it. It's, it's what happened to me on, on getting naked. The book uh, that I wrote, he, I was so myopic on things and he's like, you don't understand. The audience doesn't understand what's in your head. They only understand what's literally there on the yeah. page or that you're singing it. Yeah. There's no yes. context, right? That's completely right. <laughs> completely right. Oh man. It's so similar. So how has yeah. that shifted for you? Because lingers your latest single, right? Ling- Ling- linger. Yeah. 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 Linger was the one that we put to radio. There was a song that's come out after it called, um, I don't know, you know, but, um, okay. but linger was the one that kind of had the biggest push to it. And linger. I, I love the song by the way. And I like, I love the music video too. Uh, very different from, and I guess I would use it, I use the word current to describe how I hear the sound. Where did you as a writer and musician or not where, but how did you transition that sound? Are you trying to listen to, you know, what people are, are listening to these days? Are you, are you just trying to experiment as an artist and go where you haven't gone before? Mm. It's interesting because as a writer, I've always like, I feel like I heard it one time when I was really young and it was like any great song can be played on an acoustic guitar with a vocal. Like if it's a great song, that's how like that's all it needs. And that's always stuck with me. So every one of my songs, I hope you can sit down with an acoustic guitar and just play it. So when you dress it up and make it fancy with all the production, that's like a, 
it's a conscious choice. And I, I don't, I wish I could say that I'm really experimental, but I'm not, I'm not somebody that mm. loves to like, like, Oh, this could be cool. This could be neat. Cause I second guess everything. And the decisions are hard for me. Whereas with when there's stuff that I like listening to, and there's a certain sort of like um, musicality to things and like a vibe to things. It was a little in this situation, like I was listening to a lot of love and Laney and like, trying to think who else I was like Julia Michaels, I think is awesome. JP Sachs. So there was a lot of these artists that had really intelligent lyrics and beautiful melodies. And then they just kind of packaged them up with super sick beats and like a little bit like, like cool plucky guitars and synths and those kind of things. And I decided to work with a producer named Josh Bogert and the dude's like 21 years old now, I think. Super well, phenom, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he's super amazing. He was like a wicked violin player when he was like seven or something. Well, I was gonna ask where his rite of passage was, but there it is. <laughs> oh yeah, and he um he was on like a Disney TV show out in Toronto and stuff. But he's just he's such a like he just he's such a strong worker. He's very very smart and he just pushes himself. He's a self starter and just I had heard some of his production and I was like, gosh, this guy's like he's doing it. Like he's coming up with fresh ideas and it's really like interesting and also he used to be a big fan of mine so i knew that he would keep the like he would understand the sincerity behind my songs yeah but then he would also be able to take his young fresh production ideas and apply them to an artist that he already respected so it wouldn't be like oh i'm gonna make this guy sound like this it's like no i like andrew i actually don't want him to sound too different but now that i'm in charge of making this production i need to like really think what would be the best way to create a landscape for Andrew's next album. So it was cool. It was a really fun, fun experience. Nice. Sounds like it. Those are the, the privilege to be able to be creative in that Avenue is such a, such a gift, right. And to be able to co-create and to reimagine and to say, what would this be like in this vein? Mm-hmm. Is, is, is one of life's most wonderful challenges and opportunities. And, and I think you nailed it. I thought Linger was, like, it was dancier. It was, it, it just was, but the, the Andrew Allen, Allen course and lyrics were still there. And, and I guess I haven't listened to the whole album, but it's one, two, three, four, right? 1234. Yeah. And I, I was curious, was that about the, the numerological time? Yeah. The meaning I'd written it down somewhere. What is it? Uh, steadfast toward or so steadfast work toward achievement was what I found, but I wasn't sure if that was the only meaning behind seeing that time. Like what was the story there? Well, I mean, I kept seeing it over and over and over and over again. And I was like, why am I seeing this number? So when I did look it up, that is definitely a, a huge part of the meaning. There's other parts that are like, you have not yet finished what you've set out to create. Mm. And then the other parts are it's literally one, two, three, four, it's taking steps. And this Uh album, the one that I've just released, it's very like almost like bipolar in a way, because there's a huge section of it that I wrote um, as I was going through like a divorce and a separation and all these things that was really, really hard for me. And I wrote a lot of the songs just from that emotional moment. And then so like the, there's a good chunk of the album. That's like, I will never love again. And then there's another chunk of the album. That's like, I found love. I'm in love again. <laughs> and so it's like 1234 seemed like this natural progression where I was working towards something and to be able to show healing through an album, like where you literally get to go along with me and hear like 
oh gosh, that hurts. And then go to the next one where it's like, oh, he yeah. uh, he likes kissing this girl, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's uh yeah. So it felt like a is, really- that, is that because you had a was there a longer period of time in the creation of the single album? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, let's see, it would have been uh 2000 and oh gosh, 2000 and like the the end of 2019 coming into 2020, I guess, when I started writing it and then started recording it and finished the writing of it in 2021. And only now did the last single just come out. Right. So, right. It reminded me of when you told, when you shared that, like when you listen to, when you listen to Coldplay, I don't know the name of the album, but it was, like midnight and the one they did with Avicii and uh, Skyfall stars. And it was sort of yep. uh, magic. And then, all, and then, and then the next album there's Everglow and you kind of hear the, the Chris Martin's breakup pain versus coming to terms with it all, but, but that's between two albums. And so you're seeing all of this on, on one and, and man, I, I respect an, an artist that puts it out there and, and, and says in, in the music, this is who I am. This is what I went through. I'm just a person like yeah. you. I feel the same, you know, the same as you do. And this is how I share it. And the question I wasn't going to though. I like oh. to be honest, I wasn't going to. I had written the songs. Actually, I guess so. I would have written them in like November of 2019, the the really hard ones, because that was when it was the hardest. And then, you know, coming into like December, January, um, and then I remember playing some of those songs for my parents and they were like, oh, wow, that's a pretty heavy song. And I'm like, yeah, it, I'm never going to release it. It's just for me. And they're like, okay. And then as I started to heal and come through it, I realized that like the words that I had shared, like as a songwriter, I often feel there's a responsibility because you've been given a gift to be able to express emotion and feeling and politics and like world events through an artistic form, it's almost like when you go to buy a Hallmark card for your wife, you could easily write happy birthday, but then you read this card at Hallmark and you're like, oh, that says it better. And so you then say that, you give that, and then the your wife goes, oh, this is really sweet. You mean those? I do mean those. Okay, great. And so I realized that there's a lot of people that would have gone through the same thing that I went through or in different capacities. Like the first single I released was called Don't Feel Much. And it was this hard moment when I wrote the song and it legitimately happened where like, I was like out hanging out with friends and stuff. And I was like, I feel nothing. I literally feel nothing. Like something in my body has completely shut down where I'm not mad. I'm not upset about what's happened, but I also don't feel happy and I don't feel sad. I feel nothing. And I was like, and that's so much worse of a feeling than feeling like something. Like at least if you're upset and you're crying and you're like down you know that you're working through it, but when you're just frozen in this nothing state and I remember releasing it, it was still in the middle of all this COVID stuff. And like, there were people that were like, that's how I feel right now. Like I feel nothing. Or like people had lost siblings or they had lost friends or lost family members. And they said, I remember going through that grieving process or I'm in it now. And these words mean so much to me. And when they started to reply in that type of way, I thought, all right, even though it was my grief, that I put out in words, people aren't going to hear that necessarily and go, oh, this is from Andrew Allen's breakup. They're going to take it, internalize it and go, these are the words I needed. 
And so for me to be able to give that, I realized that as hard of a responsibility as it was, because also like I have an ex that has to hear these things. And then I have a new girl that has to hear these things, <laughs> either of which are really excited about I've hearing these I've always wondered things. about that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at the bigger picture and go, hey, it's not about me. It's not about you. These are the emotions I went through. So yes, I'm sharing them. I'm putting on the page. But at the end of the day, people aren't looking at me when I go to the grocery store and going, oh, wow, that guy, he... uh you know, he went out and did this or he went out and did that. They're just looking at me and going, oh, it's just Andrew. Mm-hmm. Do you normally wear your emotions on your sleeve or are you vulnerable or are you, are you generally more vulnerable in your writing and in your music? Um, no, I would say actually that I'm, I'm the vulnerability in my music has come out much more. I, but as like a human, I've always been pretty vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I know that we watched. Have you watched Raya the Last Dragon? It's like a Disney movie. I should. I, I oh, mean, I got, yeah. I got three young girls. Well, one's, a, one's oh. an infant, but. <laughs> uh, no, it's so good, man. So I watched it with my daughter. She's Raya sent. the Young Dragon. No, Raya the Last Dragon. Uh, Raya the Last Dragon. Raya and the Last Dragon. It's on Disney. And it's R-A-Y-A. <laughs> Just so you can watch it. But um, <laughs> I watched it. There's this one scene and it's this really selfless thing that this girl does. And it's so emotional. And my daughter looks at me, we're on the plane and she looks at me and she goes, I don't want to watch this. And I'm sobbing. (laughs) It's okay. It's going to be fine because it's a Disney movie. I know it's going to work out great. And she's like, are you sure? I'm like, I'm pretty sure. My girlfriend's sitting beside me. She's like, what the hell? (laughs) Over to there. So I'm definitely yeah, sensitive and definitely open (laughs) to being vulnerable. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I can relate in a weird way, dude. So I, I don't cry a lot. Yeah. And I was, I was explaining this to my oldest daughter who doesn't cry a lot. My middle child, quick to tears all the time. Yeah. yeah. And I said, I, I cry during sad movies, and which is pretty much many Disney, any movie that goes after you. I said, that's when all the other stuff gets released. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> Oh man. Oh, well, it's, uh, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one crying on Disney films as a grown, as a grown ass man. Right. Totally. Totally. (laughs) I, I was always curious what kept you predominantly, obviously stints in Los Angeles, but you could have lived anywhere, New York, Toronto, Vancouver, LA, but you chose the Okanagan for those in America and the rest of the world. It's four, four or five hours out of, out of Vancouver, beautiful wine wine country lake country but smaller town like it's not it's growing now but why did you choose to stay there that's a great question um so when i just lived in like vancouver for me had always been a um well not always been but for the most part that was like a working town like i would go there and i would i would do work there but i I, I didn't love the lack of space that exists in like the homes and stuff like that, because I was like, I can't afford one that has a big room. <laughs> and I just didn't, uh, I didn't sink in enough roots there to actually make relationships. Right. And with touring you, especially when you're starting out, or even if you're not starting out, it's like, it's great to be from a place where your rent's not that high or your mortgage or whatever isn't that high. You can leave it and there's an airport nearby. So Kelowna airport, international airport, it's, like 30 minutes from my house. There's very rarely any traffic. And it's like, yeah, we have the lakes and we have the wineries and we have the ski hill. So there's all these things that you can kind of have access to when you are here. But I will say this, that when, when we moved to LA, it was between LA or Nashville. Mm -hmm. And I, I was 
feeling really drawn to Nashville, but I was feeling really drawn to the LA weather. And so I was like, oh, I kind of want to go to LA because it's like, that would be way more fun to live in California. Um, and so I, we made the move to LA, but LA is a, it's a hard town. And yeah. I, I wrote, you know, over 200 songs a year while I was living there. And then I'd come back and I'd tour a bit in Canada, but it burns you out. Like LA is a really, yeah, it's a hard town. And I just got, just burnt out, like from not having good friends and people that wanted to hang out and have dinner and just do the, the things I would do in the Okanagan. And whereas I, I do question, I wonder if, if I would have moved to Nashville, if that, because they finished writing at six, you go home to dinner. Like, it's like, it's still like down South. You're, you know, you're living the family life. And invited buddy, you just moved to Nashville musician. Ah, uh, not a recording artist, but, uh, he does it in a different way. Um, yeah. He's a, he's actually on the speakers tour he's, and he combines his music with his speaking. Um, oh, cool. But he wanted to be in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. Nashville is a great city. And yeah. Austin, I, although Austin might not be the same, it's a performance city, but is it not a recording city? Not as much. It? No, and there's not, not as many writers in Austin for sure. It's a, it's definitely a music city, but it's, um, you know, Nashville has got all the publishing houses still and they've got, you know, it's just, it's a Mecca. So people come from all over the world, whether they're writing pop country, whatever, there's just this melting pot of artists and writers and producers. And it's, you know, real estate is still somewhat affordable and uh, it's just, and people don't bug you there. It's like, you know, I was out there one time and I saw Keith Urban and Nicole Kidman. I was like, Oh, Hey, you just kind of wave. Just yeah. keep going. Like where's LA? It's like, take their picture. <laughs> Paparazzi yeah, <laughs> chasing so. you down the street. I've heard that, man. I've heard, I, I mean, it, but I went to school in, in North Carolina, so I've had that taste of Southern yeah. hospitality and it is a thing. It's a <laughs> real thing. Yeah. And it's true. the most genuine heartwarming. I'll put up with humidity. Yes. You know, and, and no seasons yep. kind of like thing. Totally. It's worth it. Yeah. In my opinion. No, I agree. But I think, so if I would have moved to Nashville, I wonder if my stint in the U S would have been longer. And I wonder if I would have like held it out. But um, my now ex and I had discussed if we wanted to start a family and it sort of seemed like, well, we we're kind of getting to that age where maybe that would be a good idea. And we thought, well, we'll try. And if we were to get pregnant, then we would look at moving back to Canada because at that point to have a baby in the States was like 15 grand or something like that based even on the on the I had a baby in the States. Yeah. <laughs> I had there one in New York. <laughs> wow. There you go. Yeah. I know so, the deal. <laughs> right. So I was like, nah, let's get, let's get out of here. So we, we got out and we went to, um, we ended up coming back to Vancouver, which is the lower mainland and bought a place in Port Moody. Another great little town. Like, yes. Yeah. Awesome town. Yeah. So good. And so in Port Moody, um, again, part of it was just cost of living. Um, we were able to get this townhouse in Port Moody and it was five minutes from my birth mother's house, which I guess would be another conversation. But so my birth mother lived in Coquitlam at the time. And so I thought this is great. We'll have this new baby. And this seems like a, a good fit for everybody. And then we had our daughter and then there was some sort of like postpartum things that kind of shook down and life was just getting harder. And so we kind of got chatting and like the price of our house had gone up and we thought this is great. Like we could actually sell and move back to the Okanagan because we had family here. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we did. We sold and we came back here, built a house and um, so that we could be closer to family thinking that might've fixed things and it didn't. And mm -hmm. you know, it, it sort of 
put a bandaid on it for about a year and it wasn't really the right, it just didn't fix it. So, um, you know, shortly after that, uh, she ended up leaving and then we kind of, yeah, just went our separate ways and then sold the house and then kind of started over. And like, I made jokes before. I was like, I don't know that if I knew I was starting over, I would have taken a bus and started in Vernon. You know what I mean? Like this, I probably would be like, Oh, I'd go to Nashville or I'd this, but you know, it's funny. Cause now that I'm here and now that I'm leading the life that I'm leading, um, I like, I can still take trips to Nashville and I can still take trips to LA, but like my daughter is going to the school next to the school that I went to when I grew up here. And like, you know, there's 300 kids in the school and I know the teachers and the teachers know me and we like, you know, it's a safe, lovely neighborhood. Um, the lake is really, really close. So she's learning how to paddleboard. I go out all the time, the ski hill. We finally bought ski paths this year after 20 years. And so like, which, which one are you doing big white or, or silver, silver star, silver silver star. star. Yeah. 25 minutes from our house. So it's like, you know, I can, I can go up there, get first tracks, be back down by noon. And I'm on a writing session with somebody in LA by one. <laughs> and so it's like, and they're like, Oh man, what are you doing? I just got my bubble tea. And I'm like, great. How's your bubble tea? How long did you get to the bubble tea place? And they're like, Oh, traffic was bad. I'm like, Oh, I went skiing. They're like, what the, so it's, yeah, it's good life here. It is. Vernon is a sweet spot because like you said, there's, there's 300 wineries between Vernon and the South Okanagan, which about hundred K 60 miles. Yeah. Two, two world-class ski resorts, world-class yeah. spa, an airport that is international and in Vancouver in 30 minutes, you know, yeah. checking in time. It, it is. And the world is so small these days. It is. Yeah. You no, know, it's like you could be in LA in six hours from Vernon on two, two flights, That's maybe right. even one in the winter, right. Yeah. Depending on their schedule. Yeah. We moved out to the we moved out to a farm two years ago. Yeah. Our dearest, most posh city friends are moving to Kamloops, which is neighbors to Vernon. Like they, right. you could Gucci, Prada, uh, pe- almost penthouse, like incredibly successful downtown yeah. Vancouver. Dinner every night. Moving to, and they're young. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're moving to a sleepier town than than Vernon. It's yeah. just people. There's there's a shift happening. There is, and COVID I think played a part in that. People going, huh? We can't get out. Like you know, when you live in the city, the goal is to be able to use all the benefits of the city. But the city benefits were kind of shut down, so people started to move outside of the city. I mean, our real estate prices here have gone through the roof. People oh, who live in Vernon imagine. can't afford to live in Vernon, but they um but you get more space and you get more outdoor space and you get shorter travel times and you know, all the things. So it's, yeah, I can definitely see the shift is happening, especially as people are allowed to work from home. They're not having to commute into an office. And so they're like, Oh, I want to have room. I want to have room to like have a garden and just kind of live that life. You you hit the nail on the head because they, that was part of the reason it was like, even though they're doing it now and the vid is maybe possibly on the way out, and you're like, well, but now you can go back. It's like, nah, I still made like I'm still making the decision to, to yeah. do this for for exactly those reasons. It was just a mindset shift and a priority shift. And you, you know, we've uh you know, we haven't talked about this, but we I think we share a similar viewpoint. And you know, my biggest concern, I think that's one of the positives to come out of all of this. And my biggest concern is is will the divide that that happened over the last two years 
can it be healed and reconciled? You know, or, or are we in this constant, this constant state of two camps, two echo chambers, two, to everything really. Right. And, and I, you know, yeah, I should have asked you what side you're on before I kept this conversation going. Just I'm on, I'm on the side. I'm on the side that we need to heal and reconcile. That's I'm the with side you, man. I'm on. It I'm doesn't you. matter to me. We're always going to have differences of opinion on everything that we yeah. go through in life, you know, and, and that wedge is just so big and can it get plucked back out? I don't know. And you, you made a post, I don't know when specifically, but it just, it talked a lot about just peace and love. That mm. was it. And yeah, I was wondering how you're feeling about it all today. No, not, not opinions on the vid, just, yeah. you know, yeah. where we, where we are as a human race, <laughs> where we're going. Oh, man, that's the thing that I feel the deepest in my soul about when, when all of this started, I was like most people, I was kind of like, whoa, what is this? I'm a bit scared. You know, I'm willing to be listening and like, tell me what I need to know. And as more information has come out and that kind of stuff and, you know, different rules and regulations and those kind of things, like I have friends that are vaccinated. I have friends that aren't. And I have, um, thankfully they are fine with me no matter what. And like, those are, that's the social group that I want to spend time with. That being said, yeah. That being said, it's like, I just, you know, I just came back from a trip to Mexico, whereas my friends who are not vaccinated are not able to go. And that divide, like, thankfully they're not super angry about all that, but I, I understand where the divisiveness is coming from. And I had somebody, I posted a picture of myself and my girlfriend's daughters and my daughter, cause we had gone out for family day. We went rock climbing and I don't post a lot about them you know, a big part because I love to allow them to have their own life and it's not connected to mine and my social media <laughs> and that kind of thing. And so I don't post a ton about them, but I thought it was important. I wanted to post something about them and I did. And somebody commented on it and said like, why are you wearing masks? Blah, blah, blah. Like, this is ridiculous. This is all a hoax. And then I'm like, Whoa, buddy, not the place. Like send me an inbox message. This is just a post about family. And he sent me this big inbox message. He's like, we need artists like you to stand up for the right thing. And then I'm like, dude, you know what I'm standing up for? I'm standing up for peace and reconciliation and trying to get people to like, to understand that we can have differing opinions. And that means on both sides. Mm-hmm. Also, like, I got to say, there's some people that make very, very good points. And I appreciate the fact that they're thinking because there's a lot of people, myself included, where I like we talked about this earlier on in this, like how much have we been trained to just trust and go along with it and not think for ourselves necessarily. And there's certain things that I can absolutely see, like it's a no brainer where I'm like, okay, this is obviously just a rule, like the whole airplane thing where it's like two meters in the airport and then you're this close and you can like smell everything <laughs> on an airplane. I'm like, I don't think the masks are doing anything, guys. And um, so, you know, like when you, it's just caused people to not think or to think really hot headed about all these things. That being said, I also look at the bigger picture and go, when I wear a mask in a grocery store, like I get frustrated faster. And so I can just imagine a lot of people that have had lots of time off work or they have all their family at home or they have been struggling through different things. And the best way to get out of that is to become unified with at least one group of people. So if you're like, I'm on this side, at least I feel heard and I'm validated and I have a purpose right now. And my hope is that when the whole vid thing waters itself out and we can get away from that, 
I hope that that stress and that anxiety and the things that are really like hammering people that are causing them to be this aggressive with the divisiveness. I hope that's the thing that starts to go away. And, you know, obviously I do worry, like there's been a lot of things that have been said out there from, you know, different camps. And I just think about like family dinners when this is done and I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> like this is going to be ugly. Like <laughs> I just, I just kind of like envision this, not that I expect this to happen, but just like a head nod. Just be like two sides come up a little. We got it. We, we know we got a little intense on the other side. We don't need to say anything else. Like, <laughs> like my, uh, my, let it folks, slide. <laughs> my folks moved in with me over the first couple of months of COVID because they were living in an apartment building. And I was just in the house by myself or with my daughter half the time. And I thought, why don't you just move in here? And they're like, you want that? I'm like, no, but maybe. <laughs> no, I was actually very excited to have them come to the house. And so they moved into the house. And I remember um, my dad was going into town to pick up the grocery order. It's the very beginning of all this stuff where you'd get the online order, yeah. you pick up the groceries, you wipe them all down. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So he said, I'm going to go to the liquor store. Do you want me to pick you up something? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I, I gave him an order of what I would like to have. So he came back and I think I had asked for like tequila nudes. And I said, they're in this kind of yellowish can. So he came back and he got these like vodka orange things. And I like lost it on him because I was so stressed about everything else that was going on. I was anxious about like, what is this crazy virus? What is happening in my life? What if I can never play another live show again? How could you get me the wrong alcohol? Yeah, <laughs> so, right. You know, so I think about the stress that people have been under and I do understand as much as I can why it's so divisive. I just, I do feel similar to you that the heaviness weighs on me. And I want to do everything I can to try and eliminate that divisiveness out of love to try and be like, Hey, how do we, how do we come back together? And, but this isn't everything. It's like, it's our, it's this cancel culture right now. It's like, no, just because somebody doesn't agree or doesn't see it the same way as you do, we can align on other things and we can still care for each other on other things. Otherwise, like, gosh, kids and parents, they're not going to be living together after a few years because we don't agree on most things. Yeah. We lost nuance. You know, you hope that it's a, the, the pendulum swing correction, if you will, on saying there was there was definitely some important stuff that needed to be addressed, society at large. Yes. And so the pendulum swings dramatically over to the other side. Mm-hmm. And there is for sure casualties. My friends in the film industry, in the music industry, in the business industry would say that they're undeserving casualties as a result of the pendulum swing, people who did not deserve what having their careers ruined. I'm not making a judgment on that, but you, you have to hope that it comes back to a more equilibrium, uh, a place of equilibrium equanimity where we, we have balance. What's possible, what's possible is that if you look at like, if you look at the 60s, the conservative 60s to the roaring 70s, or I don't know if it's the roaring 70s or the roaring 80s, but one, I think it was the 70s that was peace, love, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Like mm-hmm. it's possible that the pendulum just swings back the other way all the way. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> even Vancouver nightlife will, like the curfews will be gone, right? Taking <laughs> yoga down at Kit. <laughs> right? Starts at midnight. Okay. I, my free ball and suntan and we'll, uh, we'll be a, norm but (laughs) anyway man i appreciate you sharing that i didn't i didn't want to i didn't want to put you on the spot i just thought it was really beautiful what you said and i know it's not easy i have come out and said nothing 
because yeah. I have, I have, because my, I was under so much stress with everything, you know, my, I own a travel clothing company, like yeah. my business got decimated, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I did, I couldn't handle another degree. I couldn't of stress. I couldn't, I yeah. said, if I put myself out there in any way, shape or form, I don't think I can at this moment in time. Yeah. And I also don't think you, you have a platform. I, I don't, but I, and so I think that I'm grateful for those that did have the, the courage to speak up and try and sp- spread either really well thought out points or just peace and love. Yeah. I did neither. <laughs> I just okay. drank, I just drank tequila. Hey man, I'm with you there. And you know what? There's a lot of stuff out there. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a lot of, a lot of people are voicing their opinion from soapboxes with limited information. And I think, you know, for me, I was like, no, I got to keep this thing. Now, what I say behind closed doors is different maybe than what I always post. Like there's definitely mm-hmm. like moments of just anger and anguish and mm-hmm. frustration and confusion and, you know, hearing both sides of the story and going, I don't know what to believe. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, a little chaotic in my head. But what I do know is that the only thing that people will see is what I offer. And if I offer something that divides them more, that's not a world that I want to be in. And so I'd much mm-hmm. rather share something that hopefully brings people back together. And that's something that music always has done. And, you know, I've also through this whole pandemic and everything like that, I've recognized more than ever how I don't have to share everything in my life. And so I can, you know, a lot of people do, and they share their opinions, they share their this, they share what they eat, they share all the things for me. Now I'm like, you know what, I'm going to share what I feel like sharing when I feel like sharing it. And uh, it's definitely become a shift in my mind. And yeah, it's kind of been a, it's been a beautiful thing, but I've, I've always stood for peace and love and positivity. And as uh, you know, maybe hopeful and dreamy as that is, I do. (laughs) I think that if you focus on that, but I said to my mom today, um, I was talking about this trip that I have coming up to Nashville and how, oh, this aligned and this worked out. And I, you know, got this place to stay and stuff. She goes, does it hurt to sit down sometimes? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, with all those horseshoes up your ass, I'm like, shut mom, (laughs) come on now. But she knows just as well as I do that, like when you live in a space of thinking positive and you try to keep things that way and the people around you start to become more like that and then they spread that. And it's just, I don't know. I think it's, that's the best way. (laughs) So that's, I'm going to stay in that spot. I think that's a, a, a great, place for us to a high note to end it on. I've stolen over almost two hours of your time, Andrew, and I'm very grateful for it. And I, and I would agree this cultivating and, and you create the reality that you, that you live with, that you only have to live with it. If you, if you see the world, there's no horseshoes up your ass, (laughs) (laughs) then there's definitely not. And you don't have that flow and that joy, but you can cultivate that joy and that positivity and just watch it unfold, even in a challenging time, like we've been through and continue to face with, you know, what's happening in other parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, And I usually ask, what's one thing you'd like to the audience to know, but maybe you just said it. If you didn't, then you can just tell everybody where they can go and get uh, 1234, where they can check out your singles, where they can follow your controversial opinions online. And uh... (laughs) I might call it apathy. (laughs) I will call it (laughs) peace and love. Um, That's so funny. You know, I don't, I mean, yeah, I feel like we've definitely had enough that I hope the audience can take away what they need to from this, but it's an interesting 
perspective that I had to shift into. And it was a conversation or not a conversation a, a little tiny three minute thing that I saw with Will Smith, where it was fault versus responsibility. And so often we try to figure out who's at fault so that we can make them responsible for their actions instead of recognizing that it doesn't actually matter whose fault it is. We're the only ones that can be responsible for how we choose to go forward. And so if I wake up and I decide today, I'm going to be responsible for my own happiness. And then that means I'm going to choose happiness and I'm going to try and find that in everything that I do. Then yeah, that would be something I would love to leave with the audience. And if you want to get my album, you can (laughs) find it from my website, andrewallenlive.com. If you're French Canadian, it's Andre Wallen Live. And, uh, or you can just come to my house because there's like 300 copies in my garage because it hasn't been an incredible season for touring. (laughs) Do you, uh, can they check it out on Spotify? Spotify You betcha. Yep. It's all on Spotify, iTunes, all the things, Amazon Music, everywhere. And uh, Instagram is. Andrew Allen live. Andrew Allen live. Excellent. Andrew, you have been gracious and um, it's just, it's just a delight to to talk to you and, you know, it's been too long and I, hopefully I'll make it up there this year and we'll, we'll drink some red, white and. Yeah. And you got the Balvenie behind you. So I'm thinking uh, we might have to go down that road too. We'll go on a little wine tour. Oh buddy. I like, I like it. Although I've been speaking of Nashville, I've been a bourbon guy lately. Hey, that's my jam right there. Right. What's yep. your, what is your jam specifically? A little whistle pig, a little, uh, you know, I like whistle pig. Um, there is, um, it's funny. So I, I feel like I shouldn't tell you the name of the band, but there is, uh, they, they put, is it four roses? Is the name of that oh, one? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they put four roses on their rider because nobody can ever find it in the liquor store. And so when people go, when they put it on the rider, then people go, Oh crap, we can't get it. It must be an expensive bottle. So they get them something nicer. So I've been drinking a bit of the four roses, but I would say my favorite bourbon is Blanton's Blanton's Blanton's. It's super hard to get in BC and they've got these little, it's a cork, it's a corked bottle, but the bottle itself looks like a grenade. And then it's a corked bottle, but on top of the cork is like a pewter, um, horse with a rider. And if you look really, really close by the horse's foot, there's a letter and you can actually collect all the horses that spell out Blanton's. And so I'm like, I've had two <laughs> bottles of Blanton's and my girlfriend got me a bottle when I sold the other house on closing. Um, but it's it, like, it's not a cheap bourbon and it's hard to get in BC. So mm. I'm always like, come on. Um, but yeah, it's wonderful. It's super, super good. It's really well balanced. It's just sweet enough. And it's like, Oh, it's heaven here, here. We'll drink some, <laughs> some blends that you're going to bring home from Nashville on your next trip. Oh gosh. I'm going to have to pay for a carry on just so I can bring home, <laughs> just so I can bring home the Blantons. Oh, it sounds like it's worth it. It is. It is. <laughs> awesome, brother. Well, thank you so much. And, and uh, everyone check out Andrew's latest album, check out his old albums. His, all his music is fantastic over the years. We didn't talk about Christmas uh, next time. But check out his Christmas music too. Come, <laughs> come the season. Thanks, Joel. thank you, sir. <laughs> Dude, my pleasure. As always, thanks so much for listening to the Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the the solution, the the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you. And, 
make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others and all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything, we'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.